This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 534 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kristen Zeman. It's always inspiring to find a leader who seems to be truly respected by the organization. And based on the send-off that Aurora, Illinois Police Department gave Kristen when she retired, actions speak louder than words. So we discuss a host of topics from her own journey through the department from a rookie police officer to the top position as police chief, the importance of tactical fitness, mental health, their SWAT and tactical medic program that prepared them for the horrendous workplace shooting in their city, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Kristen Zeman. Enjoy.
Kristen, I want to start by saying two things. Firstly, congratulations on your retirement, and we'll get to that in a moment. It was quite quite an affair um, that I saw on on tape. So that speaks volumes about the kind of leader you were. And also, I just want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am currently in Naples, Florida. You mentioned I retired uh, as the police chief in Aurora, Illinois, and I retired on August 6th. And on August 8th, I took off and uh, went to Naples, Florida, chasing the sunshine and trying to get as far away from the Chicago winters as I possibly can. Beautiful. Now, are you, are you living there? Are you going to move there? Yes. Yep. Yep. Living here full time. Yeah. I've never lived anywhere else in my life. So it's been the most interesting culture shift just to try to find just simple things like, well, where, you know, what doctors am I going to choose and all the stuff that you take for granted, you know? Yeah. No, I'm just Northwest of you in Ocala, Florida. So we, uh, in theory could have almost done this face to face. So that's brilliant. Welcome to Florida. Thank you so much. So, and I want to get to the transition because that's an important part, I think, of everyone's career is, you know, how we move from wearing the uniform to what's next. But I'd love to start chronologically at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Absolutely. My, uh, I was born in Aurora, Illinois, and that is obviously where I, I was lived my entire life and came up in the police department and, you know, and, and just left there. But I was born to a police officer father. Uh, I am first generation Norwegian. He came here from Norway at the age of 16 uh, by way of Canada. And he met my mother in Chicago and she was a secretary there. And uh, he became an air traffic controller before before he became a police officer. Uh, but he settled in Aurora, Illinois with my mom. I am their only child. Uh, I believe my father wanted a boy uh, so badly. Uh, and so he kind of raised me. Um, interestingly enough, very gender neutral in that, you know, you can do whatever you want and there was no, you know, no gender assignments. And so I've worshipped my dad's career since I was uh, a young child. Uh, But, you know, family dynamics, you know, they divorced when I was 16. But what's interesting about the the dynamic in that very word is my dad was an atheist, my mom, a very religious person. They could not have been more different. And so as I look back now and, you know, connecting the dots backwards, it makes me a very critical thinker, you know, listening to one side and then listening to the other and and formulating my truth somewhere in the middle from all the facts. So a very, very interesting interesting childhood, but I, I opted to follow in my dad's footsteps because I loved watching him uh, as a kid, even in our family station wagon, he would stop the car and say, don't move. And he would get out of the car. Of course, he's not working, not in uniform. He would get out of the car and he would pull people out of car accidents, you know, and he got, uh, he wrestled the keys away from someone in at a toll booth because they were driving drunk. And I remember sitting there thinking, why is my dad running towards all of this stuff and everyone else is whizzing by? But that is what instilled in me uh, the the mentality of first responders. So followed in his footsteps and he was extremely proud of that. So uh, I went to uh, obviously high school in, in Aurora and right from high school, uh, I became a police cadet. So I graduated high school in June of 91 and started as a police cadet in July of 91. So I was indoctrinated into the police culture really as a, as a child, you know, I was a sponge. 
And I have been there ever since. So for 30 years, I, I spent in the Aurora Police Department growing up both literally and figuratively. Beautiful. Well, going back to your dad for a moment, Norway is one of the countries that I talk about a lot. And we even touched on it before we started recording. When you take a step back and you look at countries all over the world, there are countries that are doing some incredible things, some, some, some things better than whatever country we're standing in around the world listening to that. Norway's prison system is amazing. Finland's education system. I think the British healthcare system is phenomenal when it's funded properly. Are there any things that you've heard your father talk about Norway that, um, seemed like great ideas that would work well over here? You know, I never really heard him talk about it. When he left Norway, you know, he'd never been back. He since I, I mean, I'm I'm 48 years old and I've never been and I have family there. Uh, so what I heard from him was not necessarily what I hear now, where my knowledge comes from and looking at these other countries. And, you know, I, I joke and it's complete, you know, sarcasm dripping with this. I say, gosh, if we if only we had other models to look at, you know, to see uh, things that are working and how, how we're doing things backwards. Um, so, yeah, I didn't get a lot of that from him, but just in the curiosity of my own culture that, you know, and family that I have there. And of course, just the curiosity that I have surrounding, you know, first responders and of course, gun control and all of the things that that we um, deal with here in the violence, you know, and in comparison to other countries that don't have that. And you you have to wonder why we don't emulate some of those models. Well, I'm going to jump right to what I t- talked about before we start recording as far as proactive. So I'm kind of totally smashing up the, the chronological war. But while we're on this, um, you know, other countries doing some things that are very progressive. Some of my family moved to Portugal and I, people listening to this podcast a lot have heard the, this, this uh, preamble uh, many, many times before. But very long story short, they had a horrendous um, epidemic, an addiction epidemic after one of the wars in Africa and all the Portuguese soldiers came home. And after years of the war on drugs, modeling the same thing that we have here, there were some very proactive, forward-thinking members of their, you know, government at the time decided to um, create a uh, kind of a movement to decriminalize drug addiction. Now, that's not selling, that's not smuggling, it's just the addict. And within less than 10 years, they went from the worst addiction to the lowest addiction rate in Europe. And I actually got to sit in front of the guy who spearheaded this in in Lisbon when I was over there. Um, And when I reverse engineer my career as a firefighter paramedic and I look at the overdoses, the drug murders, the, um, the prostitution, the homelessness, all these areas... And you reverse engineer back to the, you know, the, the insanity that actually created drug prohibition in the first place. And then you look at some of the amazing treatments for mental health and TBI, where our veterans are having to go overseas to get this treatment. Me personally, James Gearing, I'm looking at this and that. This is something that no one is discussing, but the ripple effect all the first responders of the world are having to deal with and all the citizens are, are, are falling victim of. What is your kind of philosophy on the impact of prohibition on what you've seen in 30 years? First of all, you know, addiction is a mental health issue. It's not criminal. And you mentioned this is the stark difference. Of course, those who are selling, you know, those, the ones who are introducing it into society, those are the people who we need to hold to a criminal standard. Uh, but, and, and what I didn't mention, because 
like so many people, when you gloss over your childhood, you know, um, I didn't mention that my father was a raging alcoholic. And, um, and, and part of that reason is a no brainer to me, uh, as now having lived the life of a first responder, you know, first responders have high divorce rates, have, uh, high rates of substance abuse. Wow. I wonder why, because of all of the trauma that they see. And then you add on top of that, the culture of don't ask for help, because if you ask for help, then you are, are, eliciting some sort of weakness, right? And so because of that, it gets put into a shoebox and it gets put away. And so just speaking from, you know, I, I can speak from the vast, um, you know, ideal of, of substance abuse and how we can uh, help people. So I can put first responders, you know, in, in one box and then look at the rest of society, but it all comes from the same place, trauma. It all comes from, a, you know, an attempt to numb. You mentioned military, PTSD. You know, these are all, you know, symptoms of a, a bigger issue here. And I have always thought that criminalizing substance abuse is an issue. And we went so far in our city as partnering with our social service agencies uh, for a no questions asked. If you are a, an addict and you come in, we will not charge you. Uh, we will get you the help that you need. And so there are lots of models across the outside of this country that are doing just that and they're seeing um, remarkable results. So I think that's the place that we have to start is the shift in mindset is that, you know, people come to addiction by, you know, different ways. Um, but we have to figure out, you know, the root cause of it. Yeah. What I see as well, the ripple effect. So you take, you know, the sellers, the, you know, the, the, uh, the cartels at the border, all these things. Another thing they saw in Portugal is you basically cut the head off the snake, supply and demand. So if your supply is now in the medical industry's hands and the way they do it, they have safe injection sites. If you just simply cannot, you know, beat your addiction, there are some people that are never going to be able to beat it. And it's tragic, but it's a reality and you can't pretend that, you know, that we can deal with absolutes. But because so many were ferried into addiction, counseling, job creation, and they have incentives where employers are given um, supplement, you know, supplemental income so that they can, um, if they employ someone who is a recovering addict, which is incredible too. But it frees up law enforcement. It frees up the court system. So you don't have people sitting in jails waiting to be processed for years and years and years. But then from the violence side, now you take younger people in a community where maybe they would be pulled into the gangs. Well, if illicit drugs aren't, uh, you know, a source of income anymore, well, now, you know, not all again, but a lot of those are now going to probably find themselves into better pastimes and careers. So, you know, you have the actual treating the patient, you know, the, the mental health uh, patient as just that rather than a criminal. But then I believe you have a huge ripple effect then on the crime, prostitution, homelessness and everything else that we deal with as well. Absolutely. It's all interwoven. And and I'll give you full disclosure. You're talking to someone uh, as a child who grew up um, with a man who was never abusive, but you quite obviously, you know, had had a problem and was volatile in other ways. Um, I went into policing with the mindset of this is a choice and you know, and, and it was part of the reason for my mom and dad's divorce. Right. And so my blame went to, 
him and I thought you chose the bottle over a, you know, family and insert, you chose, you know, whatever your numbing mechanism is, your drug of choice. And so my mindset was, this is absolutely criminal. This is a choice. And, and, and then as I, you know, became more aware of the world and started to really pay attention to the root causes, you know, it's, it's again, very apparent that all of the things that you mentioned that, you know, the crime stems from, um, you know, that addiction and what drives the addiction, you know, is the need to, you know, to uh, benefit from it. And I mean, criminally benefit from it, you know, putting you know, financial gains on that. So, it, you know, it's all interconnected in that dark underbelly. And, and a lot of those ailments truly would go away if we just would treat the problem and not criminalize it without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the elephants in the room when it comes to our professions as well, is I think as far as stigma, we've kind of acknowledged now the suicide element, but I think the addiction element is is the, the rest of the iceberg under the water. And like you said, alcoholism, I've lost three firefighters around here to opiate overdoses. You know, hands down, I know that's what it was. Um, and so that's the other side too. So you've got the citizens, but even within our own profession, as you mentioned, our men and women are being forced into the shadows because of the prohibition side. And rather than seeking treatment, they're actually going and, you know, one of them, I know he got stuff from China sent over and God knows what strength it was, but it killed him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and then, you know, alcohol being, you know, the legal, you know, drug, you know, and then you add on top of, of course, illegal drugs, but all, all of it. Yeah, it's all it all comes from the same, you know, the root of all that evil. And I think it's time that, you know, we started having more conversations about problem solving. Yeah, well, there's, there's also the kind of, um, you know, ripple effect as far as I feel a lot of people that have had traumatic childhoods are drawn to the uniform professions as well. And one of the big things that really worries me is we talk a lot about, oh, it's what we see in the job. And, you know, I've been, I've worked for four agencies in my career as four, um, you know, hiring practices, four sets of polygraphs and psych tests and, it was ridiculous. It was smoke and mirrors, but never once was there any really addressing what that individual brought in. So to me, another element of this is that we create rather than checking boxes at the front door of an agency, maybe while they go through academy, maybe there's a series of counseling sessions. And then obviously through the career too, you might be fine. It might be just chit chat, but you might also, you know, open up to a counselor and actually be able to start processing some of the things you went through as a child or a young man or a veteran prior to service before you put the uniform on and then compound all that with with shifts and what we see and do. Oh, absolutely. And you you know, you brought something up that it really made me think, you know, is that police officers, first responders, firefighters drawn to the profession, you know, and we often think, well, they are drawn because of this. Uh, there are special kind of people that want to help people. But when you really you know, peel those those layers away, right? Well, why is it? You know, because they were traumatized, and so they want to protect people, uh, perhaps from harm, so other people don't have to feel that. That's that's one perhaps one hypothesis. You know, and then of course, you know, the other is, you know, people are drawn to you know the action, and sometimes that action and adrenaline is also you know, numbing. You know, so but but what it does, and over the course of a career, which of course I call the thousand tiny cuts you know, that first responders see, I mean, that manifests over time and that becomes this film reel in, in their heads. And this is 
first responders see things in sometimes, you know, a week that people wouldn't see in their lifetime. And now you, you don't have coping skills to deal with these. And so it just truly adds burden on top of burden. And if you haven't learned healthy coping skills, then you're going to turn to something that is going to harm. No, absolutely. I'd love to kind of unpack a little bit more as we get in, but you mentioned again about your childhood. So you exposed to law enforcement. Um, you know, you, you've already talked about some of the trauma that you yourself brought in, because I'm sure as a child of an alcoholic father and, you know, some of the dynamics of the marriage, I mean, you know, we all, I think we all have our own version of trauma. But from the positive side, you ended up being very successful in law enforcement. So what were you doing as far as athletics and sports when you were school age? So I was in junior high and in early high school, I, I played softball and, um, but actually I wasn't, it wasn't about sports for me. Once I kind of figured out for me, it was about uh, musical theater and I turned to the arts and so writing newspaper staff. So I went the nerd route. I uh, hung up my softball cleats and, uh, and then went into musical theater and became an editor of the school newspaper. And so that became my outlet as, as, as now I connect the dots backwards as being able to write. And that was as a result of a teacher that looked at me and said, have you thought about, you know, joining the newspaper staff, maybe having your own column. And so that became my outlet. I went from team sports to, to, to writing, which was what fed my soul. Now, had you always thought about law enforcement as you were younger? I know you got into cadet program pretty early. Was that always a goal for you? Always. I, I wanted to, I had two, two dreams. I was either going to be on Saturday night live as a cast member, or I was going to be a, a police officer. And, uh, the former, uh, was not in the cards for me. I'm, uh, I am not quite as funny as I think I am. Yeah. You must've been on some scenes. I mean, the craziness we see out there where you're like, I feel like I am on Saturday night live right now. I, I can't tell you how many times that's <laughs> come out of my mouth. <laughs> All right. Well, then, so another thing I think when it comes to leadership is the power of mentorship. Um, the, the dark side of the fire service are the people that sit in lazy boys and throw shade at, you know, the probies and the rookies. And, you know, back in my day, you know, here's where I was and you guys are useless versus a lot of the great, you know, senior firefighters or great leaders I've seen have been mentors and they've taken people under their wing. Obviously, if they can't cut it, then, then you let them go, but you teach. What, even though you, you grew up around law enforcement, what was that cadet program like for you in forging your path into full-time law enforcement? So, yes, I've wanted to be a police officer since as long as I can remember. And funny that this is a little bit paradoxical and that most of the things I learned as a police cadet and being that sponge uh, and a young police officer was what not to do. I, I, when I think that it's innate in us when we walk into an environment that we want to fit in, it, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a matter of belonging, but as you know, the famous author Brene Brown says that fitting in and belonging are two very different things. Well, I tried to fit in and what fitting in does is it, you truly lose who you are, your own identity. So I sought to emulate those around me. And at the time, so this is the early nineties, I'm a police cadet. All of my friends are away at school and on the weekends I'm riding with cops. I'm riding on second shift and on midnight shift. 
And they probably, not probably, they were cops that I should not have been riding with because they were instilling uh, terrible examples. You know, the kinds of people that borrowed power from their position, the kinds of people that talked down to people and not to people. And so in my mind, I thought, wow, well, to, to yield this, quote, power, well, then it has to be power over. And as I started to try to fit in, it, it just became so far from who I actually was. And I lost myself and developed this, what I call my street personality, which was no resemblance of who I actually was. And so it took me some time and maturity to say, wait a minute, if I'm having a conversation with someone on the street and the more that I give them respect, that respect is returned the more I use my humor, my compassion, and God forbid, the V word, my vulnerability. At times I've said, dude, I'm scared. You could kill me right now. You know, we're in the backyards and I've got backup on the way. You could kill me. We both know you could. But, you know, that's that's something that I learned to do to survive. And the more I became um, who I was. And then the more I started to emulate the really good police officers, the compassionate ones, the ones who communicated with people, I, I watched them and I watched the others. And I realized that is not the kind of cop I want to be. And then as I moved through the ranks, same song and dance with supervisors, those who borrowed power from their stripes, from their collar, you know, and I thought I want to be the opposite of that. So I have been fortunate enough to have some remarkable mentors that have shown me the way, but I would, I've also been, and I call it now my good fortune to see what not to do and and who not to emulate. And that to, be, to me has been just as beneficial in my own development. Now, when you reverse engineer the type of people that, you know, you're talking about the ones that were doing the opposite of what you really need to be doing, where do you see the root of that? I, I think it's it's power and control. Probably people who pro- maybe did the same thing that I did, you know, emulated someone else because they thought that's how it was supposed to be. Um, but I think that also, you know, hurt people hurt people, right? And so you you have this concept of power. You're given this power and authority, uh, the tools that the Constitution affords us. You know, uh, incarceration, taking away someone's freedom. You know, all, all of these these powers are afforded to police officers, and when used irresponsibly. Uh, it, it's dangerous. It's volatile. And so when you have someone who wears the badge that 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 does so without the nobility and character that comes along with donning that badge, then there are going to be problems. And I, I mean, there are probably a lot of different pathways, you know, as we go from present day. So, you know, think about this. I started my career in 1991 and it was a month after the Rodney King riots. So the ripple effect and civil unrest across the nation was ensuing in that year. I end my career with George Floyd, where civil unrest is, is across the nation rippling. If you look at the two bookends of my career, you would make the assumption that policing did not get better. And I will argue vehemently that it did because I saw it with my own eyes and I saw it get more professional. I saw those police officers who 
borrowed power from their position, uh, basically be retrained, redirected, uh, coached, you know, to be guardians. And I saw a transition in professional police officers throughout my 30 years. So I know it got better, but there are still people there who are, are, who are dishonoring our profession without a doubt. Yeah, I had a guy on um, Chad Lyman, who's a, a Las Vegas police officer, travels the country, also teaching jujitsu and grappling to uh, agencies. And he had a very interesting take on the George Floyd incident, because again, as a responder, I mean, not just the PD side, but even the medics, I mean, it seemed to be there was kind of lacking some area there too. But his thing was, everyone agrees that that was a horrific incident. And this kind of applies to why, you know, the ripple effect and other other states where there was nothing to do with that but he said when you actually look at how that case was treated that officer was actually treated appropriately he was immediately fired he was you know um arrested and ultimately he got a sentence that was fitting for the crime doesn't make it any less tragic but actually that agency you know that state did own what happened and he was you know he was punished for it. So I'd never heard it that explained that way, but I thought that was a very good thing because the incident itself absolutely is anyone who wears a uniform was a disgrace. But then everyone's rioting when actually there's so much noise made, no one kind of realizes that actually that officer was, was treated exactly how he should have been. Absolutely. And you see that more and more. And I would absolutely say that there was a disparity in the way things were handled before. And that's making my point. In the 90s, there was no formal uh, internal affairs, no, no formal professional standards by which we had to adhere. The worst that I got you know, as, a, as a young cop was an ass chewing from the lieutenant that just called you in. Now we have a formal process that holds officers accountable. And when you see actions like that, and you're right, horrific, inexcusable actions, but prior to, you know, it might take a while to investigate, you know, and, and we have to make sure that we, you know, give due process, which is very important. But the world saw what happened that day and the actions of accountability were just and they were uh, they were very swift. And so I, I absolutely agree with that. But I think at that point there'd been a bubbling over of, you know, why does this keep happening, which is a valid question. Well, reverse and engineer again, these, these bad mentors that you were around, it really kind of resonates with me of, of the same kind of issue that I see people struggling in our profession with the mental health side, especially in men. This obviously applies to women as well, but as 47 years old myself, um, you know, I grew up around, you know, the Rambos, the Terminators, the, 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 you know, the, the ripple effect of the John Waynes. And there was this facade of masculinity. Talk about toxic masculinity. I think this is actually what toxic masculinity truly is. This facade that a man never cries, never shows emotion, never runs from, you know, just, just this. And the way I describe it is you've got the yin yang. When so the reason most of us joined our professions is from the soft side. But when we're in and we're faced with, with a, you know, structure fire or gunfire, that's absolutely the hard side. There's no time for, you know, emotion at that point. You got to get in your flow state. You got to get your job done. But the same softness that put us into this profession, we need to have for other people in our community. We need to have for ourselves. And I feel like a lot of our men, you know, especially certainly from like the previous generation kind of when you first came on instead of a yin yang thought of it as a black circle just all hard so i think you got a lot of that compassion fatigue on the streets and you also got that compa self-compassion fatigue 
certainly as they went through their career. Absolutely. And I will give you a great example of when the the very moment that I understood conceptually, intellectually, how terrible the culture is as it pertains to that. I was a commander and I got a phone call at 1030 at night from an officer who was not in my chain of command. And he, I picked up the phone and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm having a hard time right now. He said, last night I was on the scene of that terrible accident. Well, that terrible accident was a state trooper who was pulled over helping a disabled vehicle. A tollway worker pulled up behind the state trooper. And while they were both assisting the disabled vehicle, a semi smashed into both of them. So the tollway worker was trapped inside the truck. And the Illinois state trooper was inside of his vehicle on fire uh, along with the car. So the officer, first one on the scene, runs to the trooper, gets him out of the burning car, takes his leather coat off and puts it on the trooper. So basically puts out the fire on the trooper's body. And meanwhile, another officer jumps on top of the hood of the IDOT worker's truck and he was stuck inside the fire department. We're trying to extricate him from his truck. My officer punches through the windshield, reaches his hand in and holds the hand of the tollway worker until he takes his last breath because he doesn't want him to be alone when he dies. I later asked him, how did you do that? How did you break that window? He said, I have no idea how I did that. But this officer that called me was the one that pulled the trooper out of the burning car. And he said, I'm having a real hard time right now. And I said, stay on the phone with me or tell me where you are. I will come to you. And he said, no, no, that's not necessary. He said, I just think we need to do better. There were a lot of people on the scene last night and and we could all do better. So fast forward to the following morning, I go into my command staff meeting with my my fellow commanders and my chief. And I say, I don't want to front out this officer, but I say, hey, I think that we need to do better at checking in on our police officers. Uh, I said, especially that accident that just happened the other night. But think about all of the things they see. We've got to do better making sure that they're okay. So our meeting ends. Nobody really, eh, nobody provides much of a response. I go back to my office and I'm sitting in my office and caddy corner to my office is the copy machine. And my peer commander's out there and he's talking with someone else and he says, Oh, apparently we have to check in and make sure everybody's okay. What a bunch of mamby-pambies. James, I didn't know what a mamby-pamby was, uh, but I looked it up and it's not kind. And so I thought, this is it, man. This is the problem is that, you know, anybody who asks for help, you know, are are a bunch of mamby-pambies, you know. And, And so I vowed in that moment that I was going to do whatever I could in my power of influence to fix this ridiculous mindset. And especially you add on top of that, that officers, police officers um, kill themselves, you know, at at a higher proportion than most professions. So I don't know, that's just, you know, a clue in my profession. And so I vowed to change that. And when I became chief, I was able, I was given the great fortune to promote uh, a command staff that did not think like that, that actually were very compassionate men, by the way, uh, who understood that there is nothing weak about asking for help. And so we together put measures in place, number one, to change the culture. And I'll tell you, at some points, I think leadership is overrated because at the top of the organization, I can say, hey, guys, you need to ask for help. 
but it's the first person that actually does it. It's that officer that picked up the phone to call me. And he is, you know, he was a big burly, you know, cops cop, right? And he then, you know, went on to tell people, hey, man, you need to get some help, right? Like that messes with your head. This one's bigger than us. So the leadership is overrated. It's actually the first follower that that truly is the one that creates the journey and gives permission for everyone else. And so from that point on, and that was in 2016, where we started to change that culture and we we had resources. Uh, there's an app on everyone's phone and you push that button and you are immediately and anonymously connected with another law enforcement officer who is trained to speak with you. Or you pu- push another button and you can be on the trajectory to talk to a mental health professional, not a police officer, but if you want to go right to, to that doctor. So, and, and they don't even have to give their name. I have no way of knowing how many people have utilized that because I don't care to, as long as I know that they have it at their fingertips, that's all that matters. And that's how you change the culture is by, you know, one by one, you start the tipping point, the movement where it becomes accepted to ask for help. Now, what's the name of the app that you use? We never walk alone. Okay. I haven't heard of that one. Beautiful. No, but I agree with you completely. The number of people that come on here that are boots on the ground, you know, members of first responder community or the military community, some of who have, retri- have transitioned out and they're still helping. And I think that's it. Leadership isn't about insignia. Leadership is about who's going to stand in front of a group of people and say, we need to change. You know, it's like, you know, who, who wants to change is, is the kind of meme thing, but it's true. You have to change. You've got to be the first person. And then it's the kind of build it, they will come philosophy. But I've, I've seen that. Yeah. If it's given to a, um, a promotional rank to lead, you know, more often than not, it's not going to happen because the people who really know what's going on are the ones that are out there on the streets. I couldn't agree more. And I'll tell you what the, the, I think the, the, what you're saying, the foundation of what you just said takes courage. It's, it takes courage to say, Ooh, that one, that one's a little bigger than me. And I, I'm going to need some assistance with this. And it's that one singular act of courage in that moment that gives other people permission to do the very same thing. And I wish it weren't like that. I wish that that courage just came innate in everyone, but it doesn't because because of the commander that called everyone a mamby pamby. You know, the people are terrified of being ridiculed or being thought of as God forbid weak, you know? And so once we take the stigma off that and, and we, we um, empower people to get assistance and then fast forward to, you know, that was 2016. Then I had a mass shooting in 2019 and I didn't, actually know how to measure our progress until that day. And when I had a police officer right after the the shooting, big burly police officer, the kind with the tattoos, you know, sleeves and, and the biceps and the tailored uh, shirts to his biceps, you know, <laughs> the schmediums. <laughs> yes, the schmediums. Yeah. And when he, in front of everyone, I looked at him and I said, are you okay? And, Cause I saw him on the scene and he was standing there with his long gun and, and, and he's stoic and he looks at me and he goes, yeah, I'm fine. And I look at him again and I said, are you okay? And he fell into my arms and sobbed. And that is the most courageous man I have ever met. And from that moment, that also gave everyone else permission to do the same. So that you, you know, when people come at me with, oh, asking for help is weak, I'm, I'm like, I will fight you. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And I think the other side, how we really kind of explain it to 
the alphas of the world, the self-described alphas, is its performance as well. If you go and look at the sporting world, you know, the ultimate state is the flow state. And we cannot enter the flow state when our mind is in chaos. You have to have that calm mind along with the training, along with the stress. So if you want to be the highest performer as a SWAT operator, as a, a firefighter or a paramedic, and you're not dealing with the, the maelstrom in your mind, you're actually performing at a lower level. So if you can't get over the kind of masculinity element, then reframe it to, I want to be the best version of myself. If I go and address this and I'm talking about this and, and you know, have that post-traumatic growth move on from this, it becomes an asset now instead of a liability in my mind. You know, what's so funny about what you just said is that it's about the paradigm shift of reframing. And so, you know, I, I teach for a company called Blue Courage. And in that we talk about resilience and pattern interruption. And it's and and so we teach, quote, it's it's meditation. But if you take out the word meditation and you put in the word, you know, in the phrase tactical breathing, well, then cops are like, oh, tactical breathing. All right, that's cool. I can do that, you know, but don't you dare use the meditation word or mindfulness. And so, so just like you said, reframing it, because that's really what it is. And, you know, as, as we're trying to describe this to cops is that, you know, this is the pop can that of your life that just keeps shaking, right? You shake that pop can and what is going to happen? You know, the minute that something stressful happens or someone comes at you or says something, well, that pop can is going to explode. Load. And when you can develop ways to tap, tap, tap that pop can and do whatever it is for you, find that state of flow, which is a lot of times is having the wherewithal to pattern interrupt, to say, pause, you know, Victor Frankl, right? The greatest human freedom is to be able to choose our response in, in any situation. Having that mindset to say, all right, I'm going to pause right here, tactical breathing, whatever, stillness and silence, whatever that may be, to get back into peak state. If that means to get back on the field, to get back out on the street, then I'm going to do that. But it's 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 sometimes we have to change the verbiage and, you know, but it is what it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the more we unwrap all of these areas, whether it's, you know, our childhood coming into the profession, our kind of facade of masculinity, our understanding of mental health and or, you know, performance, I think we, we're slowly chipping away. And I think I'm seeing a paradigm shift now, but there is still... There's a difference between removing stigma and actually making actionable change. Absolutely. And I think that's where it comes by example. I think the more people that do it, and again, that's, as I mentioned, that's how you start a movement, right? Is that, you know, you have, you know, people that just continue to, to create this movement and pretty soon there's a tipping point and that's how change happens. Absolutely. Well, I want to walk through kind of your, your career. Obviously you went through the ranks. So, you mentioned about the poor mentors as a cadet. So walk me through when you started finding your own version of, you know, your path as a law enforcement officer and then kind of what, what made you kind of level up each time. And then I'd love to transition into some of the preparation prior to the, the shooting that you mentioned it before. Well, when I came in my police department in 1991, there were no females in rank whatsoever. We had roughly 12% females at the line level, but there was uh, no, no female sergeant or above. So I actually had no concept of moving up in my organization because you don't know what you don't know. And, and that's why visibility matters. It, but because I didn't see myself represented in the higher ranks. So my 
you pinnacle was to become a sworn police officer at the age of 21. That is where I, you know, what I wanted to achieve. And so once I got into that role, and as you mentioned, then mentors did begin to show themselves. And one of them was a captain at the time. Uh, he was a lieutenant when I came on as a cadet, but then uh, was promoted to captain. And he was one of those cops, cops, but uh, he was ahead of his time in that he was an academic as well. And so he was constantly saying, hey, have you read this book? And I remember thinking, well, these aren't cop books. These are leadership books. And that didn't compute to me because everybody else reads like gun and ammo, right? And in cop books. And, and so this guy was like, have you read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? And I thought, no, of course I have not read that book. And, and so he was one of the ones who instilled in me this, this burning flame of curiosity and education. And he messed up all my molecules. And he invited me uh, to go to Chicago to listen to the author, Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits, uh, speak. And I thought, man, it's my day off. You know, I don't really want to go. But when you when your captain you know, says, hey, you should do this. So I showed up in Chicago and I listened to this guy speak. And I thought, that's it. I mean, just it has nothing to do with policing, but it has everything to do with policing. Habit number one, begin with the end in mind. You know, that's you can utilize that for all of your goals and you know, throughout your day. And so that started to change the way I saw the world. But then it still never occurred to me that I could promote until it was really other people. It was, and they were male mentors that, you know, as a, I had five years as a detective and my Lieutenant looked at me and said, you should take the sergeant's test. And I thought, me, are you, are you talking to me? And by that time there had already been two females promoted to Sergeant. And so I thought, man, okay. Uh, but had he had, had he not upset that I don't, think I would have pursued it. So, you know, that just lends credence to, you know, people seeing things in you and, you know, that you don't, don't normally see in yourself. And so I took the sergeant's test and, uh, I got promoted to sergeant. So I spent five years as a sergeant thinking that that was going to be, you know, my, the rank that I've achieved. I thought this is amazing. My dad retired as a sergeant. And so I thought this is cool, you know? Um, but then, and this is where I think that, you know, that self-talk uh, comes into play. And this is not gender specific, by the way. We all have that little voice inside our heads, you know, that says, oh, you know, I, I can't do that. No, not me. And and I remember the, the the time came for the lieutenant's test to come up and you have to take a, you know, a test. You have to buy all the books. You have to get a rating. And, you know, and it's a, it's a pretty involved process. And and I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to do that. And and then the little voice inside my head that said, you know, what now? Why me shifted from wait a minute, why not me? You know, and I started to look at the other people who were going to take the test. And, you know, some of them, I was like, God, you guys can't even speak in complete sentences. And, you know, you're confident enough. And, you know, and, and I would joke and say that, but the confidence that people exude and, you know, and here I was thinking, oh, I have to check the box. I have to get a master's degree. I have to go to the, you know, the FBI Academy. And so then I thought, wait a minute, why not me? And so, um, and there's also, you mentioned mentors, but there's also another path um, that that befalls a lot of us, and those are tormentors as well. And I had my share of tormentors, and the one tormentor that I had uh, called me in his office and told me, um, he said, "I, you know, I don't, I don't like how you are uh, the evaluations that you have given on your your." 
the member, your officers. And I said, what do you mean? He said, ah, they're just, you know, they're too positive. And I thought, oh my gosh, okay. <laughs> no positivity, you know? And, and, and so he fast forward to at the end of this conversation, he looks at me and says, are you going to take the lieutenant's test? And I said, actually, I was just about to sign up for it. And he said, you will not become a lieutenant if I have anything to say about it. And so, oh man, like that just hit me like in the chest. It was like stab. And I got into my car and I thought, wow, well, I guess that was pretty short lived. You know, I'm, this is my commander telling me I'll never make it. And then, you know, I, I thought, wait a minute, you know, and then I got pissed. And so I signed up for the lieutenant's test and I bought, you know, all five of the books and I read the books. And when I got tired of reading the books, his face would flash in my head. And I was like, oh, hell no. And then I read the books again. And then I dictated the books onto a little tape recorder. And and I, I took that test and I scored number one. And I became the first female lieutenant in the history of our police department. And I tell that story because if you learn to use criticism as fuel, you will never run out of energy. And so that was a tormentor that pushed me to be the very best I possibly could just to prove him wrong. And so, you know, he's just one example, you know, of, of that ambition that presents itself in, in all of our paths, you know. And so uh, after I became a lieutenant, then I that after that, I was like, oh, I'm going for it all. I am. I'm all in. And uh, I was fortunate enough to have a chief at that time uh, who appointed me to commander several years later. And then when it came time to pursue the chief's job, when my chief retired, um, I, I didn't have that. Why not me? Uh, or I didn't have that. Why me anymore? I was like, oh, I'm going for it. Absolutely. And and so it was just persistence and and really passion for law enforcement. Every position I got into as a leader, I recognized that I had no idea what I was doing. You know, it's like you think that you know what what you're up against when you move into that next chair. And at every level, I have realized, wow, I had no idea what it looked like from this vantage point. And and I've loved that. I've loved learning how to become and to earn it once I got in that position. Now, one thing that struck me from the interviews that I listened and, you know, some of the, the videos, for example, your retirement, clearly, I know of, I know of chiefs that were disliked and almost no one showed up to their retirement. So that was definitely the polar opposite. But I get a sense of humility. I get a sense of gratitude for the men and women, you know, that are boots on the ground from your, you as a human being, forget about the rank, you as a human being. Yet so many, not only in my own personal experiences and some of the departments I work for, but I mean, I get to hear from people all over the world, whether it's the UK, whether it's Australia. And I see over and over again that sadly the wrong people get in a lot of the ranks that are, you know, are very, you know, ego driven and, and totally disconnected from, from the people that actually, you know, truly are making a difference. How were you able to hang on to that humility? Um, when, parallel in some other departments it was it seemed like you hear oh there used to be a nice guy guy or girl now you know now here they are they, they've forgotten where they came from i think as i mentioned earlier by watching those who were in that position before me do that very same thing 
And I have surrounded myself with that kind of inspiration. You know, when I think of Nelson Mandela, you know, not going after his oppressors, you know, and I think what courage and grace it takes, you know, not to be vindictive. And even though, you know, once you're given that power and authority, you're in that position and you can use that power for evil if you choose. And so there had been, of course, times where, you know, that that human side of me went, oh, now I here's my opportunity to get back. And then so I have this litmus test always that I place upon myself is that am I doing the right thing at the right time and for the right reasons? And if you're honest with yourself when you have that conversation, there are some times where you say, man, this is not for the right reasons. This is ego driven. And I'm able to kind of apply that same pattern interrupt there and say, I have to do the right thing. And so that compass has been the thing that I have held the mirror up to try to guide me. And second of all is I think that when you talk about power um, and then you apply it to, you know, you've got the power of our positions, which is a police officer, but then you now add rank to that. Right. And it's always been a little hilarious to me that those who get promoted believe that their IQ um, also elevates, you know, to the level of collar brass they have. And I've just always found that hilarious and I'm always amused by it. And I think that because I can recognize that, I, that is not my trajectory. I am not good at X. So I need you to tell me, you know, what the best path here is. Um, and so for me, it's about listening to our police officers. And it was never lost on me that sitting my, you know, moving up five ranks um, and sitting at a conference table does not provide me really the best, best vantage point to make a decision for my officers. And so I've always understood, and I don't know if it's just intuition, but I've understood that, okay, these guys know better than I do. And I think it's best to spend a lot of time on the front end, you know, asking the questions when we have time, we're a paramilitary organization. So by all means, when the defecation hits the oscillation, there is no time, you know, to, to ask for opinions. It's jump how high, but most of the time when you're putting policies and practices and tools into place, I have that luxury of saying, what do you guys think about this? And I think that's probably where that comes from is my mantra in my department. And you can ask any police officer is best idea wins. I don't care where it comes from. And so I just think recognizing that just because I've got the stars on my collar doesn't make me the smartest person in the room. And, you know, and I, I think that just learning from other people and being curious and I gather a lot of information and I make the best decision. It's also being decisive. You know, I like to gather all the information and then boom, this is how we're going to do it. Um, but, you know, I certainly look to other people. And so I, and I, I haven't forgotten what it was like you know, even though I'm so far removed from it, but I remember the days of running towards the gunfire, you know, and I, I remember the stress. And so I don't know, it's just, it's never been far removed from me. Now, conversely, I was talking about, you know, fellow officers um, at the rank that you got to, you're having to interact with council members as well. I'm talking about budgets and, and the political side, which I mean, to me, there should be no politics and public safety, but it is what it is. Um, you know, we've had this whole defund the police thing, which actually I'd love to hear you talking about that because I heard you put it very articulately in the 511 um, interview that you did. But for example, as a lowly firefighter who's not in law enforcement, it seems to me absolute insanity that every police car 
in the nation doesn't have two officers. The force multiplier element of two, the de-escalation opportunity, you know, the, I mean, if I was, if someone told me, James, there's a fight down the street, I'm not going to go skipping down on my own. If I got some other big lads, I'm going to call them too, and we're all going to go down there. Um, so how, again, were you able to create good relationships with the bean counters of the world to make sure that your department had the financial backing for the training that you wanted to bring? That's so interesting that that you mentioned that because it actually happened when we had a new chief financial officer come in. So I cannot take credit for the uh, the art. And I'm speaking, you know, you've got 18,000 police departments across the nation in the United States. And every single one of them, you know, has different training standards, you know, put in place by their state. Right. And so in the state of Illinois, where I was the chief, there were mandated training, you know, that came from the state. Well, we surpassed that. And we we had six mandatory trainings above and beyond uh, what was expected us. And you can tell the difference between professional police organizations that have and dedicate the resources and time uh, to training versus those that don't. And those that don't are the ones in the headlines, the ones who are that are making grave mistakes out there on the field, perhaps not by intent, but, but because they have not they, they, you play like you practice and they have not been given uh, or afforded that opportunity to practice in a high stress environment. So that comes down to a lot of dollar signs. So the six mandatory trainings that we put our officers through are, are scenario based. And a lot of them are scenario based where you put them into these high stress situations where uh, we, there are actors involved and they're emulating you know, a headline, you know, from, from somewhere else. And they're putting officers through the same scenario. So now we're paying overtime for those officers to be there. And, you know, so we still have to cover the street while still sending these officers. So the price tag is exorbitant. And so the chief financial officer said, and this was before our mass shooting, you know, said, we're going to have to take a real hard look at your training budget. And my response was, you'll have to pry that budget out of my cold, dead hands. And and then and then you give examples, you know, and see, that's where people that's how how I speak to city council members. And fortunately, they were very rational beings that listen to, you know, the amount of money that we've paid out in lawsuits is truly inconsequential compared to the other cities that don't have the training. So so when you show people the amount of lawsuits and the amount of money that are paid out for malfeasance on police officers, and then you compare it with my training budget, it's not even close. And then you get the yeah, that makes sense. So it's really it's selling it. You have to also be a you know a great marketing person for your department. And I say, how many times have you seen our police officers in the headlines? How many lawsuits do we have active right now? Here are the the, the amount of money that we've paid off, and then that resonates with those decision makers. And so uh, we have to tell the stories, and we have to show, not just tell, that this is why this is the best you know path to take, and this is why that you have to invest in this police department and the tools for them. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. Um, with the police reform bill, again, I heard you talking about pros and cons. So I thought it was like a very, you know, great perspective. So I know you've already mentioned it once on their podcast, but I'd love to kind of pull that out of you as well. And I think during the time that I had that interview, I think the reform bill had not had some of the fixes. And so I was pretty furious about it. And so <laughs> You know, you it's police reform, you know, is is great. This is like, you know, I think people have this notion that it's it's it's, you know, not mutually exclusive, that you you can you 
you can oppose or want to abolish the police, you know, but the truth is, is you can support your police, but also want them to be better. And, and so that's what reform looks like to me is, you know, making sure that we as a profession are uh, in a constant state of self-improvement. And so this reform bill was thrust upon us by the way, in the middle of the night. And so when you have a 700 page bill that gets passed in, in the cloak of darkness, um, you know, my spidey senses start tingling fr from that. You know, they didn't invite any police officers or anyone to the table, any subject matter experts. It was a knee jerk reaction uh, to the Minneapolis incident. And and that is not to say that there aren't police departments that need these these legislative changes. First of all, shame on the police departments that have to be mandated to do the things that came out in this reform bill, you know, like officers, mental health and wellness, you know, having uh, resources like social workers, um, devoting more time to training, uh, eliminating chokeholds. These are things that progressive police chiefs have been instituting all over the nation. And so because of an infraction, you know, somewhere else, people took, it, it, you know, opportunity of this. And so on one hand, I welcomed it is if you can't do this on your own, then you know what? You really should be mandated to do these things. But then there were other things that were preposterous that were actually forget about police officers that were actually going to make victims of more people. There will be more bloodshed. And a great example of that is omitting the um, obstruction charge. And the obstruction charge is, is put in place for an officer to begin to investigate a, a scenario. And, and I'll, I'll give you a great example is if, you know, someone reports um, that uh, a, a guy with a black t-shirt, you know, and headphones on him, I'm looking at you right now. <laughs> Wait a second, you're profiling. That's illegal. <laughs> male white, uh, you know, pretty handsome, walking down the street, you know, and he just stole my purse, right? And so, you know, well, now you, we've just been given a description. And so now a police officer stops you and says, sir, may I please see, you know, form of identification? We've just, you know, we've been given your description. And you say, no, F off. I'm not giving you anything. Well, when you defy a police officer's um, lawful, uh, um, you know, you cannot, a lawful directive, you, you cannot do that. You are now obstructing. And so without that charge, we basically can say, okay, there's literally nothing we can do here. And so, you know, and, and the idea was that you can't charge obstructing unless it, you had probable cause. Well, a probable cause is literally the smoking gun. I've seen you just do the thing, you know? And so it, it's putting officers, it's not allowing them to investigate an incident. And it's truly emboldening people to say, screw you, I don't have to listen to you, you know? And, and we ask people to step out of their vehicles for a good reason. You know, one of my officers saw fist punching in a car and he couldn't tell who was hitting who, but he knew someone was getting harmed inside this vehicle. And so he pulls the car over and, you know, it's 101, separate people who are in the middle of an altercation because especially a domestic, you know, we don't want to put a victim in a position to have to, you know, say what happened in front of the abuser. Step out of the car, sir. Um, without that obstruction charge, you know, the guy could say, absolutely, no way. And so you're really limiting what a police officer can do. And so you have to ask yourself, what do you want from your police department? Do you want your police officer to try to thwart crime, to keep the peace? And when you take away some of those law 
lawful powers that are being used responsibly. I'm not talking about profiling. I'm not talking about I'm talking about these powers that are used responsibly to investigate crimes. And you are now handcuffing a police officer to say, all right, go ahead. You know, you just perhaps stole someone's purse um, or battered someone, but go ahead, be on your way because I have no power and authority here. And so there's, so I said that the bill was 70% good, but 30% horrific and some of the things they were doing. Same with um, not allowing an officer to observe their body cam before writing a report. Uh, I just watched the baseball game for the playoffs last night between Tampa Bay and um, I don't know, the blue team, Boston, uh, Boston and Tampa Bay. And and there was a, a play that they had to watch from all different angles to call it. Well, you can do that in sports, but gosh, when you apply real life and an officer having to make a split second decision, you know, to use force to either defend someone's life or their own, and you can't look at your body cam footage, you're creating a gotcha moment. You're basically trying to, you know, to ask the officer to recall something when they were in the middle of a high stress situation. And now their report might not match their body cam. And now you're going to try to discredit them. And I have absolutely no use for that. I am the first person that will tell you I want all bad cops out of our profession. I will stand with you when you are right and I will part with you when you are wrong. But these some of this these reform measures were truly taking the power away, the legitimate and responsible power from police officers and what is going to result and what you have seen uh, is crime go up because people are emboldened to do whatever they they feel they can without any accountability. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. You know, when they talk about profiling, I've had this conversation with a few people on here, but you have two types. You have criminal profiling and you have racial profiling. And, you know, even with the racial one, there was a guy on a long time ago, but he made a good point. I mean, you're in Florida now. You look at the cars. Most of the cars you cannot see through the windows. So how your racial profiling in a state where almost everyone is completely blacked out anyway, I'm one of the few people that you can still see through because I don't want to get shot. I'm not putting tint on mine. <laughs> but, um, you know, that in itself is ridiculous. But also, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to hide. So I've been pulled over. I've had some horrific experiences with law enforcement. A law enforcement SRO at my son's school basically kidnapped him. As the laws have been changed now, she kidnapped my child and he was there for three days. Baker acted in them psych facility because he was upset because of what was going on in his mother's house and then i've had another one on a wreck where a semi pushed us out into um you know a, a four-lane highway actually a six-lane highway and then starts you know the officer starts chit-chatting with the semi driver while me and my eight-year-old you know who's who i'm consoling you know i mean it's just it's so there are shitty ones out there and i'm calling you out because you're pieces of shit and you shouldn't even be wearing the badge however that doesn't tar everyone else and i've worked alongside so many great you know, law enforcement officers that, you know, some of whom are now dead because they were shot doing their job. And so, you know, but I see that that, that is a very, very important thing. If your child was kidnapped by someone and they could have saved them by simply doing a traffic stop because the vehicle matched or the person matched. And to do that, they pulled two or three people over that were innocent, but they saved your child and you take that ability away. That seems to be absolute insanity to me. Absolutely. And you have to strike that balance. Of course, you know, if a police officer is out there 
truly utilizing the 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 power of their position with for power with power to you know to make sure that people are safe then by all means we have to give officers tools and that's what the constitution does it affords officers the tools to do just that and it is those officers that tarnish the badge um that do such a great disservice to our entire profession you know and and officers have to ask themselves in the moment what is important now what is the problem that i am trying to solve and and also honestly they their their first and foremost should be i am here to help not harm i am here to help what can i what can i do to help and so i i do i i am vehement uh, about police officers that that do a great dishonor and tarnish our badge and they have no business here and you know and until i no longer have a voice you know i'll be calling you know bad cops out on their actions and i'll continue to do that you know and even in in this retired state <laughs> Well, you mentioned the shooting. I want to get to the preparation before. So talk to me about the years leading up to that um, when it comes to the SWAT training, the tactical medic program and some of the other areas that you saw, even even the community policing that all kind of paid into that one event. So we had been a department of really strong community relations. And so once again, that has just been an innate in our profession, in our, I'm sorry, in our police department. And so it's, you know, there's a lot of police departments that uh, check a box, right? We have a community policing unit, you know, but if you don't truly walk that walk, then it's just, to me, it's a word salad. You listen to community policing, procedural justice, relational policing, all word salads, you know, to just build relationships in times of peace, period. That is what builds trust and that is what builds relationships. And that is where the legitimacy comes from. It is as simple as that. So we've done a great job of that. But in 2016, and this is where, you know, I, I I look to other people, what I mentioned earlier about, about some of my shortcomings. So in 2016, I become chief and uh, I call upon the SWAT commander and the SWAT lieutenant and say, all right, what's everything look like? What, what's what's the situation here? You know, these, these officers, not only the officers on the street, but our SWAT team are the first line of defense in our community. And, and a great illustration is 9-11, the greatest terrorist attack of our time. You didn't see the military come out of black helicopters. You saw cops and firefighters running into these buildings to save people. So let's pretend that the worst is about to happen. How, how are we situated with tools and with training? SWAT commander uh, and SWAT lieutenant Rick Robertson uh, and Jack Victor said, our SWAT uh, gear is expired. Our vests are expired. We need nine bangs. I did not even know what nine bangs were. I was like, okay, all right. So make me a list of all of the things we need an extra training day, which was a fight with the union. Um, so it was like all of this red tape that we had to go through. And I said, I'm going to trust you to tell me what we need. Here is the only thing that I'm going to ask of you educate me because I have to sell this to city council. When you purchase all of these things, you know, I, I'm the one that has to explain why we need it. I have to give the why behind the do. And so they did a phenomenal job of educating me. Um, and my trajectory in my career had been community policing, a detective for five years. So I was, I was, I was a first line responder, but that training was limited to just that. I was never specialized in operations or tactics. So that wasn't my 
trajectory. I wasn't, you know, I, it just wasn't my specialty. So this, these guys were, that is, they live and breathe, you know, the, the camo and that is why they are in the position. And so, um, they made a list and they made changes to the training, added more training. And it was, it was absolutely incredible how this path began to get the tools to start building the skills. We upped our active shooter training. We also then partnered with other police departments because we recognize, okay, if, once again, the defecation hits the oscillation. We're not going to be the only department there. Let's train together so we know how we operate. So our SWAT team started training with the bigger departments that were similarly similarly situated. Then we got a grant and we started training with the fire department for rescue task force. And since you are in fire service, I love telling this story because the firefighters were so resistant. I went to the first training and the RTF teams, they're teaching them how to go in together. You know, they're clearing rooms. And this is, of course, as I mentioned, scenario-based training. You know, it's all fake, but it's high stress. There's, you know, real shots fired. We're using, you know, airsoft pistols and we're using simunitions and there's actors. And the firefighters were like, this is bullshit. <laughs> we're firefighters, you know? And so it was so funny because the chief and I were talking, he was, yeah, I've got, I've got a faction of firefighters that are just like, why are we doing this? This is not our job. This is the cop's job, you know? But when you think about what we have learned from Columbine, start, let's start with the mass shooting where we all started training differently is that you set up a perimeter and the people died that day because we couldn't get medics in to that building. And, and people died not because their wounds um, were, were, were going to lead to their death was because they couldn't get treated. You know, these, these, they could have survived these wounds, but they bled out, you know? And so we have now evolved into our training and now we recognize we, we can't wait for it to be a cool zone for, you know, the EMTs to come in there. And so we started training and a lot of resistance. And so it was, all of these things were put in place. And then in 2019, February 15th, 2019, the thing happened that I never could have predicted. That thing that we keep training for and preparing for that we never think is going to happen in our jurisdiction. And a guy who worked at a manufacturing plant was about to get terminated. And in the middle of his termination meeting, he killed four people, uh, walked out, shot someone in the back. Uh, went down and just started, uh, killed another person. So five people in total were killed, uh, one shot. And then as my officer started to respond, uh, he turned his attention to the first responders and shot one by one, every officer that was, was attempting to infiltrate. And so five officers shot and then RTF teams, you know, start going into the, thus started a 90 minute grid search in a 300,000 square foot warehouse uh, looking for bad guy. And it was cops and firefighters that were going in these teams, first SWAT team cleared the area, then the RTF teams went in, but they performed absolutely flawlessly that day. Now you can argue, well, they did get shot. So maybe it's not flawless, but they did not retreat though. They didn't know where the shooter uh, was shooting from. He was actually in a vestibule and he was shooting out, out of the building at our police officers as they responded one by one and one by one, as they, they as they got shot, they did not retreat. They just kept moving forward until they were able to throw those nine bangs that I didn't know what they were, or why we needed them and move him to the back of the building. And eventually our SWAT team was able to neutralize the threat, uh, which is a beautiful way of saying, you know, that, that they killed the bad guy. 
Uh, but all of the training led to that very moment. It's, it is the Winston Churchill quote, you know, there comes a time in every man's life when you are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and asked to do something fitted to your talent, your skills and your ability. What a shame if that moment finds you unprepared for that, which would have been your finest hour. And those cops, it was their finest hour and they saved so many lives that day. There was nothing they could do about the initial, you know, victims that were killed. It's so sad. Um, uh, but they saved so many lives that day and they did a remarkable job. And it was because they they literally rose to the level of, of their training. Well, it's so important to hear for a number of reasons. Firstly, just envisioning what a barricaded suspect in 300,000 square feet of warehouse and the suspect knows that warehouse would be terrifying for anyone going in. So kudos to everyone that went, you know, made entry that day. But um, one of the things that I've seen in the more complacent department that I worked at um, is if it hasn't happened, it's not going to happen versus the polar opposite. I mean, if you just do basic statistics, every time you roll a dice, you know, there's, there's a higher frequency that you're going to hit that, that, you know, one in whatever number. So, you know, it's, it's very, very powerful when we hear that there is that proactivity, there is that, um, foresight in a department that precedes something horrendous that truly can then look back and say, we actually saved lives. Cause if you hadn't had that training, what would that death toll look like on that day? I have always been of the opinion, and I have gotten actually some flack for this, is that I am a worst case scenario. So I, even in my own personal life, what I, I go through this, this exercise is, okay, what is the worst thing that could happen? And, and people think that I'm inviting, you know, bad juju by, by sitting with the worst thing that could happen. But when I, I truly, what is the worst thing that could happen? And, and as it becomes very personal, you know, I put in for the Chicago police superintendent's job, what's the worst thing that could happen? Um, well, funny that one, the worst thing that could happen is I get the job, but, but, <laughs> you know, um, but, but when I asked myself, all right, what's the worst thing that could happen? And it's the same that we have to do in our profession. What is the worst thing that can happen? And then the, you have to sit with that for a moment. And then the part two of that is, are you willing to accept it? And you know, what, what actions are you going to take to prevent that worst thing from happening? Or when it does, what tools will you have at your disposal? So what do you need to do now to prepare for the worst thing that is going to happen? And that's how we should all be preparing for the worst. And, and then of course, as, as you know, it's very trite, but of course we all, all hope for the best. But now when we prepare for the worst, we are ready. We've gone through the training. We've gone through these active shooter scenarios so many times. We've also learned how to apply tourniquets in high stress situations. You know, we've practiced with the shields and the shields saved lives that day of our officers. They were shot in the shields and they took some leg shots that, that they were able to recover from. But for those shields that it would have been a lot worse, but they practiced with those really heavy shields, you know, going through that, um, that, that high stress quote training. And I asked one of my officers, he, uh, they had entered the building, bad guy had shot the first officer in the parking lot. These two officers had entered the building and bad guy walked up the stairs and they met each other in the hallway. Bad guy shoots one of the cops immediately. So the other cop is left to tend to, to his buddy applies the tourniquet 
and now he's he's doesn't want to leave him and so he's you know watching the hallway he knows the shooters at large he hears more shots going off and i asked him i said what were you thinking while you were up there in that hallway applying the tourniquet and he said i felt like i was in the middle of a training scenario he said at one point he looked at the shot officer and said dude do a tack load and the officer responded but i haven't even fired my weapon yet he's like i don't know do a tack load anyway <laughs> But, but that's what we practice, right? You know, tack load, tack load. And, um, and so he's like, I just felt like it was in the middle of one of those simunitions training. And he said, so my heart was beating and I applied the tourniquet and I was watching the hallway and covering the officer. And, and that is why you prepare for the worst so that when you are in the middle of the real thing, then it just feels like a training practice. It's that muscle memory. And so that's why we have to have the tools. That's why we have to have the training. So I think that any responsible organization has to think, all right, are we prepared for the worst thing that's going to happen? You're irresponsible if you don't. I agree a hundred percent. Now, just t- speaking of, you know, the weight, the shields and, you know, obviously the, the physical toll of, of that incident alone. What about strength and conditioning in your department? What's the philosophy and what are some of the tools that you've given your men and women? So that is one area where we fail really miserably is like when you talk about strength and conditioning in the physical sense, right? We had made great strides with the mental, you know, and mindset. In fact, mindset is one of the things we build into our training. And in the, in this, in the middle of the shootout, when one of the officers was shot in the eye, you hear him over the radio say, I'm shot but I'm still in the fight and he doesn't retreat. So we're, we're great with that mindset. So the physical though, um, we, I think we fall short and you know, we have, there are some departments that make it mandatory to pass physical standards and we have made it voluntary. And so you continue to get really the fittest that show up, Hey, we're going to do an obstacle course next week. You know, we're going to, we're going to start this fitness challenge, um, all volunteer. And I, personally think I could have done better at pushing uh, for for uh, for more physical requirements. But the the feedback was we're going to lose half the department if they can't pass this, you know, and honestly, I think that was a failure um, to not pursue that on my part. But we did get a lot of people who were already physical, but then we did have some people that are like, okay, I want to up my game. I really want to be better. And so those were great success stories. But I, I think I could have been better at, at actually forcing that because that's what it would have taken. So an interesting kind of, um, you know, it's, it's always an interesting conversation with this area. And what I hear a lot is exactly that, you know, oh, you're trying to you're trying to fire guys. And, and the reality is we all knew what the bar was when we walked through the door. Like in Florida, the firefighter, you know, fire academy is called minimum standards that couldn't be labeled better of what you know, was expected to you from you, um, after that. But, um, you know, on the converse side, the shifts, you know, the, the, for, for law enforcement sitting in cars, the access to decent food. I mean, the job absolutely sets us up for failure. So. And what I think is the answer is that you do have a punitive standard, but you do it in stages over several years. So anyone, wherever they are, can either transition back to being to that standard or transition to, you know, a role that doesn't, you know, specifically require a high level of fitness. So you mentioned about, um, the union. And one thing that I've seen, again, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I was a member of a union my whole firefighter career, but I've seen some great unions and I've seen some terrible ones where there's a lot of self-serving 
to push against, for example, fitness standards because the union board know that they themselves wouldn't pass. So rather than do what's best for the entire department, they do what's best for themselves. So what were your experiences with unions through your career, pros and cons, without loading the question? Yeah, that, that's a loaded question. Um, I've had some great union presidents that I call my friends to this day that I respect immensely. Um, and those were the ones where we would fight um, and blow the roof off, you know, my office, you know, and then still be like, all right, let's go out and have a drink. Right. You know, and where I truly respected and understood, I've been, I've been a, a product and fortunate to have a, a very strong union fighting for my benefits. Um, so I am very pro union, make no mistake about that, but you hit it right on the head, the union president and board, um, that, and again, it's been, I've had really good ones and really bad ones. And the really bad ones are the ones who are only self-promoting. They are only looking out for their own individual best interests. And that is part of the problem. And we we see this, um, it comes to greed, you know, where they are in their career. And so if it's not benefiting them, you know, then, it, but benefiting the department as a whole, um, then they absolutely will fight against it. And it becomes exhausting. And not only that, but when I hear police officers say there's nobody that, you know, that hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And then I see a bad cop create uh, or, uh, you know, uh, have an infraction that is worthy of termination and everyone knows it. But, you know, then the union fights to get their job back. And now I do understand that there is some, you know, level of representation that you have to provide. But I I've fired five people. I'm not proud of that. That is not something I tout. Um, I've, I had to terminate them. Uh, I mean, they terminated themselves. Um, three of them have gotten their jobs back. And one of them, you know, is, is a sexual predator. One of them threatened to put a bullet in someone's head. These are people who do not deserve to have the badge. And they've gotten their jobs back because the union has fought for it. And in, in the, the good union presidents I've had were the ones who met with me behind closed doors and said, we don't want him here either. And, and you know what? We're not going to fight this, but just know that when I walk out this door, you're my enemy. And I'm like, good, you know, and, and we high five and I'm down with that. But the the app, the poor union presidents are the ones who are not doing the best for the organization. And what I have found is that they they fight at a win at any cost, because I will take a loss if I know that. All right. Listen, it's you know, it's 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 best for the police department, um, but it's the win at any cost. And so I think that if you want real reform in policing, that there has to be a better way than having unions fighting for officers who have been terminated and getting their job back. But but it's a lot of things like that. I mean, just little things that we're, we're fighting. You know, I sent an officer for a mental health evaluation and the union said it was punitive and it wasn't. It was out of care and concern. So it's like you say that you want us to take care of your mental health. And, and in our contract, I can't uh, there is no mental health. There's they don't go on regular mental health visits. There has to be something that happens in order for them for me to force them to do it. And in this particular case, um, this detective needed help really badly. And so I sent this detective for, you know, uh, an evaluation and the union came down on me as punitive. And I'm like, you can't have both. You know, you can't. And so a lot of fighting. But I have found that it's just sometimes for the sake of fighting. But I have great respect for 
union presidents that are doing the best for the organization. No, absolutely. I think it's the same. You know, we have to parallel the unions with the administrations and even with, you know, the countries. I use the term very loosely leadership that we've seen the last 20 years where, you know, if we have a system that's not creating the right people at the top, then we need to take a step back and look at the system full stop, you know, because if you're not at the front of, uh, you know, a union, whether it's locally or even internationally, taking firefighters' money and not using it to make the profession healthier and forging longevity, then you have no business being in that position. I couldn't agree more. And and another, we've mentioned courage earlier, you know, and courage is applied here, right? You know, and so I, I was, I just announced my retirement. I've got one foot out the door. I can't tell you how many people were like, hey, listen, we didn't agree with, you know, what our union president said or did or, you know, and I'm like, well, that's so interesting and would have been very helpful, you know, if you'd have stood up, you know, but it's like, ah, we just don't want to rock the boat, you know, and I just, I also think that our profession, we have the monopoly on bravery. We run towards things um, and, you know, there is no shortage of bravery, but I would say, sadly, there's a, a shortage of courage at times, you know, and I'm, I'm calling, you know, the, the moral courage. Absolutely. Well, speaking of courage, um, the Henry Pratt incident, the shooting in 2019, talk to me about the mental and physical toll of that on your department. Ah, oh, man, I, I, I didn't realize the toll that it had taken, you know, until truly the dust had settled, the literal dust. You know, we're really good at managing a scene. We're good at running towards, you know, the gunfire. And then it's, you know, when the scene folds, you know, and then the officers have to suit up because 911 calls don't stop. You know, five five of their uh, brothers are in the hospital and we don't know, you know, what their status is, but get back on the street, you know, and go out there and answer 911 calls. Show up tonight on midnight shift, you know, after just having gone through that incident. Um, and because the only ones that got time off per our contract were the ones who were either shot or who fired their weapon. Everybody else who was still even in the middle of it, um, had to come back to work and that's via that's contract, you know? And so sometimes we have to look at these preposterous contracts that are in place and ask ourselves what's important now. Right. And so, you know, but that's a whole other topic. Um, and so what we started to recognize, as I mentioned, that officer who just fell into my arms was what actually alerted me to this is so big. This is bigger than anything that we have ever gone through. And um, what did help, and this is such a, a switch that was flipped, but as I mentioned, we had a very strong relationship with, with our community. Our Aurora uh, community uh, enveloped us after that. Our officers were heroes, and because they were, um, by definition, literally, they saved so many lives that day. So we had you know, a community envelop us. There wasn't a day that went by for months where I didn't walk into my lobby and see hot food, meals, you know, which it kind of to your point about, you know, physical health and wellness. I was like, all right, these guys don't need any more donuts. You know? <laughs> um, but that's how people showed their care and concern. And I have never seen officers um, so broken and so hurt and then, you know, stand up a little taller because they knew the community was was truly wrapping their their arms around them. But as it manifested, it was just that I, I don't know who went to go seek help, but we brought in mental health professionals that were really um, 
um, that were well-versed in first responders. So we brought in our employee assistance program at first, but they really don't have any credibility with the police officers. And I learned that very quickly. And so we brought in uh, teams of mental health professionals that were either former police officers or trained um, with first responders in, in, in mental health response. And once again, it was the officers that showed enough courage to say, I'm going to go in there and talk to that person. And I want you to go in there too. And they were kind of pushing each other in. But even that, I don't think we scratched the surface. I mean, I had an officer show up at my house um, with his wife and we drank a bottle of whiskey together and cried our faces off, you know, because it's, he was the one, um, the one who told me that it felt like a training scenario. And just sitting there with him and, and, and hearing him speak and feel um, was what needed, what is what was needed in that moment. And I, and he had the courage to just show up. He literally just showed up and I was like, all right, let's do this, you know? Um, but the pain that people were feeling um, that, and, and I tried as much as I could to absorb a lot of that pain and, um, and make sure that they got the help they needed. Um, and I think for the most part, I think because of the work we had done and once again on the front end and changing the culture, I think the officers got the help they needed. We were fortunate enough where we didn't have anyone, um, to my knowledge, disability out because of this event. Uh, we had physical disabilities where they weren't able to come back because of their, um, you know, their bullet wounds. Um, but as far as, you know, they were they were all able to come back. And I know that a lot of them are still being treated um, and, you know, we're several years out on this. And so I think that that is an ongoing process in the same way that we show up on the range and we practice our target shooting is the same way that we have to practice our, our mental health and well-being as well. And so I, I think that our officers have really started to embrace that and continued uh, to do that since the incident. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's great to hear that, that, you know, obviously no one um, was killed by the wounds, but I know, as you said, you had, you know, one officer lose an eye and multiple others that were wounded. So I'm glad that, you know, they're all doing well as far as they can be but i mean it really underlines again the sacrifice i mean they all were wounded for you know a building full of strangers so it's so powerful and i think the other thing you, you mentioned the phrase death by a thousand cuts we also have um a tendency in our profession to look at acute events whether it's that shooting whether it's you know vegas whereas the rest of the department as you said every single shift they're going out and getting those those cuts and eventually there's going to be a, a tipping point if, if they're not able to affect their sleep, their mental health, you know, all these things that, that positively offload some of that trauma. So, you know, I think it's important for all departments to have an acute event and the people that were on that event, but also remember that, I mean, it could be someone 11 years into their career that wasn't in any, you know, newsworthy event but just did what a firefighter or a dispatcher or a police officer did. And that might be their moment compounded with what they brought into the profession. So absolutely, we need to, you know, take care of each other when we're on those events. And we need to look at everyone else who wasn't on that event too and make sure they're okay. I couldn't agree more. And that's what I refer to as that film reel of events that have happened throughout our career. And something you mentioned um, that I, I failed to mention so our shot officers got a lot of help, a lot of attention, a lot of help. You know, they're raised as heroes and they even said, listen, we feel, you know, very loved and supported. The guy that just missed coming to the scene, like, you know, couldn't get there. 
the guy, one of the guys told me who was out of town, you know, in his kid's baseball game, he is struggling right now because he feels like he let down his team because he wasn't there. So it's not just the ones are in, involved in the live gunfire, right, or in the actual incident. And not only that, but let's talk about the the unseen heroes, the dispatchers that are running the scene that are, you know, taking in these these people that they know personally that are getting shot and and are having to maintain this calm and steady presence and gathering data and information and dispatching out all the while having to endure you know i could i could hear their voices crack but if you didn't know them you wouldn't know that and so this is the ecosystem of all of us and so it's not just those that are right in the front line of the trauma but those who are interconnected to it you know as as a family and so we we and, and you could say, well, you weren't even there. You know, how, how are you struggling? Oh, my gosh. The guilt that people are feeling because they weren't there sometimes is heavier to carry than being there, you know. And and so I have heard all kinds of stories of trauma from that event. And then, of course, that brings up past events that have happened. You know, we had one guy that was shot in the neck through and through. That's his second headshot of his career. You know, I mean, come on, man. And so, you know, I looked at him afterwards. I was like, all right, are you ready for me to sign your retirement papers? And he's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going out on my own, you know, but it's the trauma that, that again, is that film reel of a, of a career of a first responder. And, and that's why I think that it has to be exercised um, routinely, you know, sometimes when you don't even know, and I heard from officers who are like, you know what, actually, I think I'm okay. And I was like, just give them five minutes, walk in there and give them five minutes, that mental health professional. Well, that five minutes turns into 20 minutes, you know, and they're like, okay, I didn't know I needed that until I went in there. So it's that head versus heart, right? Our head, it's like that officer that looked at me and said, looked at me and said, I'm fine. His head is saying, yeah, I'm fine. And when I looked at him again and called him on it and said, are you okay? That's when his heart caught up with him and was like, oh, no, I'm not okay, right? It's So you've got to give that opportunity. You know, I mean, that's what heart is. We are led by the heart and we have to spend um, more time truly focusing on that with our first responders. Yeah, well, especially with that question, are you okay? And then following up with, are you really okay? I just saw a beautiful moment from the end of one of the UFC fights recently. Robbie Lawler and Nick Diaz. And Nick Diaz had been just just seemingly like he was troubled by something in the build-up to the fight. And at the end, he ended up losing to Robbie Lawler and they're embracing the end of the fight. And he says, you know, are you okay, man? He's like, yeah. And he goes, no, but how are you doing in life? And then you just see the switch and he says something like, you know, we can get through this together. And I forget the exact term. It was beautiful by these two guys that have been beating the shit out of each other for five rounds or, or three rounds, whatever it was. But that's just it. The number of times I found that where it's almost a knee jerk the first time. Yeah, I'm good. But when you say, nah, nah, mate, are you, how are you really doing? And then that second question, it's like those walls just crumble down. So that second, second round of checking in with someone is so, so important. And people just need to try it. Just, just go out there and try it. You'd be amazed how, you know, the, 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 the revisit of that almost immediately really disarms that knee jerk and gets to the real core of how someone's doing. 
retweet on that. You're exactly right. Because I think we allow people to, no, I'm fine. Cool. All right, moving on, you know, but no, I mean, and that's where you really do get at the root at it, you know, and you do, you have to stick with it. And that those beautiful moments are what I have seen with my own eyes, you know, uh, officers calling, uh, you know, calling each other out, you know, and that is where we're going to make progress. Absolutely. Well, I know we've been talking for a while. There's one more area I want to just touch on quickly before we go to some closing questions. Um, what has been your philosophy in your department when it comes to school safety? There's such a, a spectrum of, of, you know, ideas and principles out there. Um, in my book, I wrote on a couple of things. I think, I don't know if I touched on what happened to my son. Um, I don't think I did, but I was also there during what they thought was a real code red. It turned out it was actually forest. Um, no, that, that actual one was a, was someone they were chasing just in the, the neighborhood of a school. So that was a real threat. But we ended up having an actual school shooting here in Ocala, but a, a few weeks later, but it was in another high school and, and both my sons and their respective schools were locked down again, another code red. So, but the first one I got to be inside the school, I was dropping my son off from a medical appointment. So I, I realized, oh my God, these teachers have no idea what's going on. They're so vulnerable. I'm looking around like, you know, some walking dead scene for things I can use to, you know, try, try and attack someone if they do come in. But it made me realize that, um, you know, firstly, there's a spectrum of ideas. Secondly, the person that you send to be the SRO needs to not only be an incredible human when it comes to relating with the kids and talking about mental health and prevention and maybe inspiration for the first responder careers, but they also need to be one of your best officers. So you don't have a repeat of Parkland, for example, where that officer never goes in. Oh, yes. I have so much to say about this. And it is truly finding that human, right? I mean, and that is the human with the cape, because we have had school resource officers um, that have been chosen that are great tactical. I would put them, you know, in a hallway with a long gun any day, uh, you know, against an active shooter that can't talk to kids, you know, that don't have any coaching or, or mentoring mentality. So to find that human that that encompasses both a coaching, mentoring, compassionate, you know, bridge building human that also also can, you know, shift into, you know, from guardian to warrior in that moment um, is quite a feat. And so that is what we have set out to do. The challenge that I have found has been with schools, uh, school boards um, bringing in long guns. And we had to fight vigorously uh, with a couple of our school districts um, at, to get the officers to be able to bring long guns in. And what we did was settled on um, kind of a hybrid in that um, the officers would bring in backpacks. And, you know, now that there are plenty of firearms that are compact, you know, and and uh, um, so they have the backpack with the, you know, with the school logo on them. But and so nobody knows that there's a long gun inside. Um, and we even had a school district that said, OK, but you have to um, install a safe in the office. And but then we had to put a picture in front of that safe. So no one even knew that that was there. And so these were some um, of the ways that we had to capitulate. But I was willing to meet in the middle because. Because I know that it's scary for some people. So that's not lost on me. But listen, we have not only trained active shooter, and that's really what we were focusing on is active shooter training in schools. You know, how are we going to respond? Do, what school resource officers are there? Do they have the tools necessary? Do they have the mindset to be able to take this on? You know, the answer is boom, yes. And so that's where we began. And, and so we have school resource officers in every middle school and every high school. And then we 
have a liaison um, in every elementary school. Uh, but so, no, we were kind of ahead of the, the, the curve on that. And it did. We had to really um, we had to really come overcome a lot of resistance and in, in that for some of the districts. Yeah, well, that's what I have. I encounter with with uh, the incident with my son, just to be very brief, is that particular administration, when it got to getting to the root of what happened, because it was a complete um, disregard of very well written protocols. I mean, very, very well written. It was all about the escalation. They, did, they discarded it. It was the end of the day. They wanted to go home. They sent him off and Baker acted him for three days. Absolutely disgusting. So I went to you know, I pulled the, the Baker out record, saw this one school was sending so many kids. Um, there was no accountability for, for the, the principal and the school. There was no accountability for the officers making those decisions. There was zero accountability. So when I went to each of the agencies, they were like, oh, the school was like, oh, it's the sheriff's you know, problem. You know, it's their fault. When I went to the sheriff, I was like, oh, it's the school's fault. Now, luckily, not luckily, but I think because of a lot of voices pushing against it, now the laws have changed. So there is accountability. And I went back with the new administration and it's been fixed. But when it comes to school safety, again, like we've talked about with so many areas, the police and fire element, you know, the silo issue, that seems to be a very, very important element is that you know, there is communication between school boards and law enforcement, and there is a demand for the right personality, like you said, someone who can interact with the kids. But when, you know, when, as you said, the uh, defecation hits the oscillation, I love that, um, you know, that person can switch from from mentor to, you know, to the tactical person they need to be. God forbid someone walks into the school with ill intentions. And we haven't even touched on the role of the staff as well, you know, is that these interactions and trainings have to take place inside the building. And what we discovered, and uh, especially after, you know, the Pratt shooting where we put a school on lockdown and we discovered that, you know, we, we've got all different protocols. You know, it's like you've got your red card, green card in one school. And so everybody is operating off of a different system. And so um, we also shore that up and made sure that we have, you know, contingency plans and consistent um, ways of operating with the schools. And so we invited all of the schools to come and we gave the training, you know, and, and so it, it came from us. And so when you have it, uh, with everybody in the room that needs to be in the room. And then, you know, now teachers understand, boom, this is exactly what I need to do. And a moments of hesitation on their part can also, you know, be a, a matter of life and death. And so now they know precisely what to do, but that's what it takes is that it's not just the police department that's going to run in there. You have to have staff full on understanding here, here is, is what's going to happen when we hit that big red button. Here is, you know, I know what my role is. I know what I have to do. And I think that is imperative. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your perspective on not only that, but so much we talked about. So I would love to transition to some closing questions. Before I do, because the first one is going to be a recommendation for other people's books, I know that you're writing a book. So tell me about the book and then tell me you know, the release date and how people are going to be able to find that when it's out. So my book is, I, I've had a blog for many years and it started as, as I mentioned, you know, as a school newspaper nerd and, you know, writing, but I was fortunate to get a, uh, an editorial in my local newspaper when I became a sergeant. So I was writing for the local newspaper for years. And so then when the newspaper, when I got too busy to write it and the newspaper changed hands, I transitioned over to a blog. And so my blog is uh, to a shameless plug, kristenzeman.com. And 
then I, I, I've kind of fallen off as chief because I didn't have a lot of time, but now I'm getting back into it. But um, I write a lot about law enforcement events and what my opinions are about them. And then literally kind of like the, the story, uh, the thread in the tapestry of my life, uh, I was giving a talk one day and someone said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I thought, oh my God, no, but since you mentioned it, so they kind of lit this little fire. And so it was actually right before the mass shooting that I sat down and I thought, I'm going to write a book. And I don't know what kind of book it's going to be. It's a, you know, it it ended up being, and it's funny because my publisher is still like, wow, we have like a lot going on here because it's a memoir. Uh, it's a book about leadership, a lot of what not to do, you know, and the things that I've learned. Uh, and, you know, it's it's also a very it's a personal journey of me becoming. Um, and it also touches on events like George Floyd. It touches on um, race relations. And, you know, it hits some pretty heavy topics because that's how I feel, you know. And so, you know, the the joke is that it's, I'm probably going to piss off people on both sides of the aisle which I'm pretty okay with, you know, I mean, that's kind of where I live is, you know, pretty, you know, middle centric. Um, And so the book comes out at the beginning of next year, we were really shooting for uh, when I retired, but uh, with the industry and some of the, you know, uh, supply chain is that books aren't getting published as fast. So, um, so the book, you know, we just came up with a title, it's Reimagining Blue. Um, Not that we need to, not that our law enforcement profession is broken, but that we can always be better, you know, and we can be hopeful about the future. And so that that's what it's about. It's like memoir, leadership, policing, all wrapped into one. And so uh, I I don't know if it sucks. It might, you know, I know my mom is going to buy it. So, you know, I've got, I've got, you know, one person out there. Um, but when it becomes available, you know, it will become available on Amazon and, you know, so, so we'll see how that unfolds. I just had to kind of purge it out. You know, it's like just that check a box thing I had to do for myself. Beautiful. No, I think everyone should write a book. And I think Amazon has made it possible now. I mean, yes, you can get traditional publishing. I went through just Amazon because I wanted to be in control. And like you said, like I'd stand squarely in the middle as well. And that's how you don't sell books. You want to sell books, you go to the extremes and say stuff that pisses everyone off and you'll sell a shitload. But, um, but the point is, you know, what people need to hear is, for example, your story where, you know, you've gone through all the ranks and you're clearly respected as a leader. Um, so versus a leadership book, like here's, you know, principles to be a great leader. I think the storytelling is so much more important. That's why I love these conversations. But to see your through line and to see how, you know, the, the mistakes you made and the things that you learned from applied to, you know, the success ultimately in your department, I think is a very, very powerful story that I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot out of. Oh, well, thank you so much. I am. I'm looking. I'm, I'm excited and scared. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, are there any books written by other people that you love to recommend that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated? Oh, we don't have enough time for this. Well, first of all, anything that Malcolm Gladwell writes, um, I literally hang on his every word. Um, Brene Brown is one of my favorite authors. Um, Adam Grant, Think Again, uh, is a a transformable book for me. Um, The Art of Impossible, Stephen Kotler. I'm reading right now, uh, Courage is Calling. Uh, This is Ryan Holiday's new book. Um, I love stoicism and, you know, that's what he writes about. So that's the book I'm absorbed in right now. Brilliant. Well, that's a hell of a list of some great names. Brene is actually someone I'd love to get on one day. I'm going to keep plugging away. She'd be incredible. Yeah, I worship her. (laughs) 
Um, all right. Well, the same question, but a movie and or a documentary that you love. So <laughs> this is the uh, a movie that I love is I, I'm I love the movie Fried Green Tomatoes, but that's also because I was a, a fan of Fanny Flagg, the author. I just think it's great storytelling, uh, but that's just kind of a blast from my past. Um, but my favorite uh, book of all time is To Kill a Mockingbird, and also that's my favorite play and movie. Um, but documentary. So my favorite documentary, oddly enough, is called Neat. Um, I, I'm, I, I don't drink much, but I love whiskey. And this, this documentary is about, um, the making of whiskey, but it's far more than that. It's about generations and it's about family and it's about connection, you know, and how we all connect, you know, over, you know, this, this, this libation, but it's about family and it's just, it's a really cool documentary. So it's kind of an odd thing, but, you know, I love it. Beautiful. Well, you just touching on drinking for a second. Um, one thing I didn't ask you, a lot of people in our professions struggle when they transition out. I think it's very easy, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, to identify as the cop, the firefighter, the, you know, the soldier. Um, what has been your transition so far? Um, I mean, obviously you've, you've moved states, so I'm sure that's a, a positive thing, a lot more sunshine down here than, than you were used to. But have you had any, any, um, you know, issues with the transition or have you had great kind of tribes and projects to transition into? So my thought was because now remember, I'd gone through a mass shooting and, you know, I've been the chief for almost six years, mass shooting in 2019, uh, a pandemic, uh, which I didn't know how to lead through. I, you know, had to make that up as I went along. So uh, crisis, crisis, and then civil unrest. So it literally went. And when I say from hero to zero, flipped a switch, it was like, you know, our, our cops are heroes. It has been three years of the the greatest stress of my professional career. And so I decided that I was going to kind of wait for the dust to settle. I, again, I've been in my department for 30 years, 27 sworn. And so my plan was to just be quiet. That's part of the reason I moved to Florida. Uh, we've got four kids and the youngest is 21 and just about to graduate college. So they're all spoken for and you know, pretty much on their own. And so I was like, all right, we wanna chase the sunshine and get away from the Chicago winters. And I'm going to just be quiet for a couple months and then decide I wanna finish the book and then decide what I wanna be when I grow up. Well, that is not what has happened. I have been retired since August 8th, and I have been living out of a suitcase because I am being invited to speak on my, I give a mass shooting presentation and it touches on operations. It used to be just for law enforcement because I thought that's kind of, we always, you know, and you know this in your profession, we always do a whitewash, an after action report of what happened. And so I was doing that, you know, actually for the past few years, even during the pandemic virtually. But once I announced my retirement, the invitations to come give this mass shooting presentation because it comprises operations, but it also comprises culture because um, this this shooting could have been prevented if it hadn't been for the culture of this organization, because this man said, if they call me in the office and terminate me, I'm going to blow up um, everybody and kill every MF or in here is that was his exact quote. And so the cult, no one reported it. So I have a big talk on culture and on taking care of your people and on prevention, on what you can do in your own organization. So this has morphed into a consulting business 
that I never planned to do. And so I am now going anytime anyone invites me to speak um, at mass shooting. That is what I have been doing living out of the suitcase because it is my passion project. And I will spend the rest of my days trying to prevent uh, a mass shooting from happening in any organization, and then even trying to assist people who have been through it. Uh, and then I teach for, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a company called Blue Courage, and it is exactly everything um, encompassing that we, what we have talked about today. It is taking care of the police officer as a whole. We talk about taking care of them, forget your organization. You know, you have to take care of your physical and mental and spiritual health um, in order to be the best at what you are. Um, in order to get to mastery, you have to have all of these tools at your disposal. And so I've been going around to police departments teaching, you know, blue courage. Um, and so it's nice because I still get to hang out with cops as, as I train them. But then I get to go home because they're not mad at me because I'm not their chief. So it's a uh, it's kind of the best of both worlds. But but truly, my passion is this consulting business that I accidentally started, and um, and it's all about mass shooting presentations. And uh, I'll go anywhere I'm invited. Beautiful. That's great to hear. The transition was good, and I think that's it. Where, where I see people succeed is they they have another tribe outside of the profession. And I think a lot of us, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's that soft side that puts us into the the service in the first place. You can be on that same mission wearing a uniform, wearing a suit, wearing, you know, just board shorts. It doesn't matter. As long as your purpose and what you're doing with your day is, is helping, you're still carrying that torch. So I think if we allow ourselves to, to understand that we're human beings wearing a uniform, but it's that human being that really wants to serve and we find another way of serving, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's volunteering, whether it's a podcast or, you know, lecturing. I think that's a very, very powerful tool to use when you transition out. There's a book called The Second Mountain. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I cannot remember who the author is. And that's exactly what he talks about is that, you know, it's our first mountain is that conquering of like, I want to achieve, you know, I need, I want to get to this level. I want to become a chief. I want to become a firefighter. It's conquering this thing. But the second mountain is actually where you follow your passion and, and where you give back to the world. And that resonated with me so much. And I read it before I retired and I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. And now that I'm sitting on this second mountain and I'm recognizing that, that what my passion is, is to prevent the next mass shooting. Um, it, it becomes so meaningful. It's like, I feel like I'm aligned to this North star purpose and it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, I agree 100%. Absolutely. Well, the next of the closing questions then, um, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yeah, um, I would recommend uh, a guy named Michael Neela. He is actually the captain that I talked to you about earlier that forced me uh, to go to you know, read all the books. He is the founder of Blue Courage, and that's why it's a great full circle moment for me to be able to not only my whole career has been a trajectory of this man pushing me, but then now to come back and teach for him on these topics that he's instilled in me. And he goes around, he is a master trainer um, for law enforcement, and he's retired from the profession for you know over 20 years, but he's made it his life's mission to help with resilience in police officers. And so he is a great person to have these conversations with. 
Brilliant. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. We'll have to make that happen. Um, so the last question before we make sure where people can find you and where they can find Blue Courage as well, what do you do to decompress? Ooh, so I recently have been now uh, practicing what I'm preaching. Uh, I was very um, uh, resistant to meditation because not not because of the mindset I didn't want to do it. I felt incapable of doing it. I am a I'm a person that cannot sit still. I am literally like I'm always on to the next thing. So when you tell me to sit in stillness and silence for 10 minutes, I get very restless. And I have been um, forcing myself to go on these guided meditations. And it's now evolved into uh, where I can actually sit, you know, for 10 minutes. And I didn't realize how much of that is truly affecting positively on my mental health and that being able to find that pattern interrupt and to, to just be still and allow, you know, my thoughts to just kind of go where they, they might be. So that has been, uh, something that I do now every day. And then reading is, uh, is literally my mind candy. I mean, if you will find me now, especially now that I'm here in Florida, you know, in my downtime, just sitting by the pool and delving into the next great author that I can learn something from. I don't read a lot of fiction. So, uh, so a nonfiction is, is really the stuff that I love to delve into, but that's what I do to decompress. Now, do you use an app for the meditation? Um, I actually, well, I'm also a big Peloton fanatic. So, you know, I've got the Peloton bike. And so the, on the Peloton app, they have uh, meditation as well. So that's where I started was using that guided meditation also, another um, kind of along the same lines, I just discovered the Oculus virtual reality and how that can help. I'm, I'm obsessed with how this could help police officers because you, you go on to this, you know, virtual reality, you go through a guided meditation and you it, it calms you. And I actually think there's a place for this in law enforcement when you've got in firefighting and, you know, first responders, you're going call to call to call. And you've got to put that call aside from the baby that you just pulled out of a burning car at the car wreck. And you've got to go on to the man who's having a heart attack. Right. And where is that pause, that pattern interrupt? And you could actually, in my mind, this is my idea that you can throw on these virtual reality you can center yourself and, and it will take literally minutes and then you can go on to the next thing. So I've also discovered that. So I use an app on the on the uh, Oculus called Supernatural. Um, and so that also has some guided meditation on there. So I'm a work in progress when it comes to that meditation. But I have found uh, that it is absolutely affecting me positively and kind of making me a little more calm than I used to be. Yeah, well, I just went... Uh, really a death by a thousand cuts myself i found myself in a very low place a couple of months ago and i think it was a combination of again you know just seeing the horrendous division through lack of leadership you know in our country whether it's the police element whether it's the vaccine you name it um but also you know so i hadn't seen my family in three years when i finally got to travel when our two petulant leaders finally allowed each other to open the borders um there was all these you know i mean hundreds of dollars worth of, of vaccine um, excuse me of um of COVID testing along the way. Um, and so by the time I got to my family, I was completely burnt out. But I agree 100% with what you said. The one thing I made myself do was get back on my Headspace app and start meditating every single day. When I got back, I stopped drinking. It's been almost four weeks now. But the the absolute force multiplier was meditation. And I'll do 10, 15 minutes just sitting on my porch with the, you know, plugged in. Um, you know, Andy Puddicombs, the guy's actually been on the show is, is the guy talking. And, you know, you can do that for 
five minutes, ten minutes in in a, in a fire station, and you know, in a police station, wherever it is, whether you've got the Oculus or not, but just to sit there and reset and punctuate, whether it's the end of a shift, whether it's when you get home, whether it's between calls, but the monkey mind element that is created through the professions that we've served in is is it, it's insidious. You you don't see it coming. It, it creeps up on you, and the power of meditation to reverse that, I think, is so so under misunderstood. I wouldn't have thought it and I resisted it until I got it. And it actually, I mean, it takes going through it to say, you know, to really recognize the benefits. And yeah, I am a, I am a product now of, you know, I'm like, you know, not resisting it anymore, embracing it. And I can't believe the benefits that it has provided. So I've now, you know, I've become a disciple of it. Beautiful. All right. Well then, if people want to learn more about you, reach out to you, where are the places online, whether it's social media or, or websites that they can find you? So my website, as I mentioned, is kristenzeman.com. And that is where my blog lives. But that will be transitioning. That same uh, website will be transitioning into my consulting website. Um, and that is where you'll also be able to find uh, to book me for speaking uh, about the mass shooting, about leadership, and where you can also purchase my book that actually uh, is going to launch at the end of October. Uh, so that will go live there. And then uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Chief underscore K Zeman. And those are the two places I hang out the most. I'm on LinkedIn as Kristen Zeman, and but uh, Twitter is where is where I hang out the most. Beautiful. Well, Kristen, I want to say thank you so much. Firstly, it's so refreshing to speak to someone who rose all the way to the the pinnacle when it comes to rank structure, but is a good leader because those two, as we mentioned before, aren't always you know synonymous. Um, but you know, to hear some of the things that your departments went through, some of the good, some of the bad, and your perspective on some of the things that have happened outside your department are absolutely invaluable. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Well, thank you so much. It's absolutely an honor to be here and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you.